Do you think if Trump gets reelected, we're going to finally get Greenland? We're going to buy on. Greenland. We better. We're better. Run do on it. that. He should run on that. I feel like that would <laughs> really juice up his campaign. <laughs> <laughs> when was the last time a country sold a piece of territory? Because like, it used to happen, obviously, That's we know like, from history. Question. Yeah. In, in the 1800s a Google. lot. But... Wait, 2017? Huh. Saudi Arabia bought something from Egypt? Oh. oh. Hmm. Tiran Island and Sanafir Island. Oh, I'm looking at um, it right now. On the, oh, the, yeah. $22 million. Uh, Wikipedia, of course, has a... Oil uh, and development aid. It looks like the U.S. did buy some mm-hmm. islands from Denmark in 1917. So there's precedent. There is precedent. Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. King Charles III was crowned over the weekend, which led to a lot of polls being released comparing his popularity to his late mother's and his son William's. Long story short, the numbers are not great. Don't worry, we are not going to moonlight as royal watches today, though. Instead, I have more of a philosophical question that also applies to polling of other unelected roles, which is, if the whole point of the monarchy is that it doesn't derive its power from the people, why poll public opinion? And on the topic of polls, there was an ABC News Washington Post poll out this weekend that got a lot of attention. It shows both Trump and DeSantis leading Biden in a very early 2024 matchup. So what should we make of that poll? We're also going to talk about the 2024 Senate races that are taking shape. Republican challengers to vulnerable Democratic incumbents are announcing their bids and some of the names you will recognize from the 2022 midterms. So is there reason to believe that candidates who lost in 2022 might do better this time around? And lastly, the census released new data that gives the clearest picture yet of who voted in those 2022 midterms. We've got a lot to discuss. So here with me to do it is senior elections analyst Jeffrey Skelly. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Galen. Also here with us is senior reporter Amelia Thompson-DeVoe. Hey, Amelia. Hey, Galen. And senior elections analyst Nathaniel Rakich. Hey, Nathaniel. Good morning, Galen. Uh, how early did you wake up to watch the coronation, be honest? Oh, 5.30? Um, no, I'm kidding. I uh, only really saw it play out through the savagery that took place on Twitter over the weekend. Twitter was not really into the, into the coronation. I don't know if anyone else noticed, but people were not being very nice. Oh, no. Uh, clearly, Galen, you're not on royal Twitter. What um, were people saying? I don't know. It's just like kind of salty people who aren't into the idea of a monarchy, you know, which I guess is like a fair position to hold. But I will say my Twitter timeline was not balanced evenly between enthusiastic royalists and it's mostly Americans, I think, who just are like, this is dumb or whatever. You need um, to follow more royalists, Galen. I do. I this do. This is clearly the answer. This is exposing um, a weakness in your Twitter following. I know. I know. In the run up to Charles's coronation, as I mentioned, a lot of polls were conducted and they showed him significantly less popular than other members of the royal family namely his son, Prince William, and daughter-in-law, Princess Catherine. On top of that, polls also show that while a majority of Brits support the existence of the monarchy, support has declined some, and a majority of younger Brits don't support it. The National Center for Social Research found that just 29% say the retention of the monarchy is very important, the lowest proportion on record. So seeing all of this polling come across my transom late last week got me thinking like what is the point of conducting public opinion polling 
if the monarchy isn't a democratic institution. Like here on the 538 Politics Podcast, we always talk about how public opinion matters because we live in a democracy. And the whole point of living in a democracy is what the people want should have some influence on what we get out of our political system. But is polling a monarchy, in other words, a good or bad use of polling? Nathaniel. Um, I think it's a good use of polling. I mean, first of all, like, it's interesting, right? I, I appreciate it when we get polls of, like, figures in America that, who are just, like, public figures and not politicians. I, I, I think that's interesting, and it provides mm-hmm. data to, to make informed decisions and uh, or just, like, you know, informed commentary, I guess, about who Americans admire and maybe who would be a good spokesperson for, a, you know, I don't know, a Neutrogena commercial or something like that. Maybe they want <laughs> King Charles to be a spokesperson. For no, Neutrogena. I think they want Prince William to be don't. a Neutrogena. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Um, or Prince Harry. He's pretty popular in the U.S. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, they can get Prince Harry to do their U.S. campaign, Prince William to do their U.K. campaign. Anyway, um, but yeah, so I think it's a good use of polling for that reason, but also for, I think, more serious reasons, which are, are that obviously, like, the U.K. may not have a monarchy forever, and, you know, there, you know, it is, I think, still a while away from being abolished if that ever happens, but the conversations are in the air, and obviously, polling is the only way we're going to know if that ever reaches kind of majority support and um and then if if that were to happen then you may would maybe see some momentum behind that movement and i think it is worthwhile to know if that is going to happen anytime soon which maybe brings us to a more complicated question which is in lots of societies there are parts of government that are designed to be not accountable to the people. I mean, a monarchy is an extreme example, but here in the United States, we have a Supreme Court. Obviously, in other countries, they have other systems of government. For example, in China, where the government is fully not responsive to the, or at least fully not accountable to the public. But we still get, for example, here, we pull the Supreme Court. In academic research papers, a lot of the research suggests that public opinion does still matter in China and that the central government is responsive to public opinion, which I guess just kind of makes me think, does public opinion matter in all forms of, of government, period, like even if they aren't democracies? Well, I think public opinion has kind of always mattered to the British monarchy, at least thinking about, you know, going back to 1066 or whenever we count this Indeed. particular iteration. <laughs> I don't know. This is I'm going to I'm going to hit the limits of my knowledge real quick. Um, but, you know, I mean, even as far back as the 13th century, there was this like group of rebel barons that rose up and forced King John to sign the Magna Carta, which was, you know, one of these first kind of attempts to create a set of rights. And that happened because he was an unpopular and weak king. And he didn't want to sign it, but he had to in order to keep a, you know, a bigger rebellion from fomenting and and possibly taking over the crown. And then of course, if Charles the third on the throne right now, but Charles the first was quite famously deposed and beheaded. um, And the monarchy was abolished for a period of time in England and then or in Britain, and then brought back. Um, And so, you know, and then a couple decades after that, after the Glorious Revolution, they created a structure where, you know, they actually like the the monarchy, the British monarchy is, is quite limited in some ways. It's it's answerable mm-hmm. to Parliament. Parliament has a lot of control over various aspects of the monarchy. And so I think, you know, I, I don't see a world where there's a big 
anti-monarchist sentiment rising in Great Britain to overthrow the monarchy, but they have a lot of privileges that Parliament could, in theory, take away, and they could have their power and privilege reduced significantly. And I think in particular, one thing we've seen is unhappiness um, in Britain over how expensive the royal family is and how much of their sort of lifestyle and upkeep historically taxpayers have footed the bill for. I mean, this the coronation it's going to cost, I think, something like 100 million pounds. Um, and there was some polling showing that a majority of people in Britain didn't think the government should be footing the bill for that. Now, it was still, the country's still divided about that. But I think that is maybe the more important question for what's mm-hmm. happening with the monarchy. And in some ways, that's similar to the Supreme Court, too. Like, we're not going to get rid of the U.S. Supreme Court, but the theory that a lot of scholars have put forward for why the Supreme Court does in some instances appear to be responsive to public opinion is that Congress has control over aspects of the way the Supreme Court does its job and how broad its jurisdiction is, and that Congress will signal its displeasure to the Supreme Court by introducing bills that would curb the Supreme Court's power in some way. And so the theory of that is that you know, Congress makes noises about reducing the Supreme Court's power and the Supreme Court backs off. So, you know, I think Mm -hmm. we could see something similar with the royal family, where if they don't have good public opinion, there's unhappiness about how much money they're spending, whatever, Mm -hmm. then they respond because they could, in theory, be checked by parliament. Jeff, how are you processing all of this? I mean, I think it's a good use of polling just to sort of echo sentiments that have been shared here. I think it's also important to remember that a lot of this is dependent on who the king or queen is. Uh, So obviously, Elizabeth had been queen for just over 70 years. And that's a long, long time for people to become familiar with somebody who's just sort of there, right? So now we're in a period of change. And Charles Charles has a somewhat checkered past, uh, his relationship with Diana and other views of him. Like, he, he's, he's not the same sort of beloved figure. Um, whether or not that changes in the next few years remains to be seen. But we do know that polling suggests that that William, his his heir, is is very popular. So in a situation where William comes into the monarchy uh, in the next few years, you know, if Charles passes or or, or abdicates, I mean, who knows um, what sort of situations could arise? Um, I mean, you could imagine like a health-based abdication even. That's not an yeah, unheard yeah. of thing in monarchies. I'm not saying like some scandal or something. Um, you know, that could actually strengthen the monarchy's position uh, in terms of, of public polling. So, you know, I think that's another thing that we have to keep in mind. So ultimately, it's good to poll non-democracies is what the conclusion that we're coming to. And things that are theoretically unaccountable to public opinion. It is perhaps less a good use of polling to poll people in the U.S. about what they think about the British royal family. Sure. I yes. will concede that point. <laughs> um, I think like definitely a good use of polling to poll the people who are actually being ruled by the British royal family. Americans like to think that their opinion matters, but um, it does not really matter. Sorry, guys. All right. Well, okay. let's move on to another poll where public opinion in America does actually matter. Over the weekend, an ABC News Washington Post poll got a lot of attention. And so 
I want to talk about it. Uh, the poll showed Biden at his lowest approval so far. That was at 36%. It also polled a very early head-to-head between Biden and DeSantis and Trump. And among people who were definite on who they'd vote for, Trump led by four points and DeSantis was tied with Biden. If you also include people who said they probably knew who they would vote for, then Trump extends his lead over Biden by seven points and DeSantis's lead over Biden is five points. So I should say here, the evergreen advice on the 538 Politics podcast is that you put a new poll in the average. But beyond that, is there other context we should know about this poll as it gets so much attention? Well, I think it is worth remembering that it is a it is an outlier of sorts. Um, to your, as you were saying, Galen, uh, we tend to recommend people throw things into an average. So uh, in that poll, Biden's approval rating was, I think, 36 percent. Yeah. And if you look at polls taken over a similar time span that are currently in 538's average, uh, that one is the lowest uh, for Biden. Mm-hmm. And the high was 45% from a, I think it was an Economist YouGov poll. So what I'm saying is, to your point, you, you throw it into an average uh, to get uh, a fix on things because polls are snapshots in time. We know there's a margin of error. Different pollsters have different methodologies. Um, and this is, to be clear, not at all taking away from uh, the findings in ABC News Washington Post poll. It's just that it's all about context and understanding what the polls as a whole are sh- suggesting is going on. In fact, it's important to publish outliers because you have a stronger average on the whole when people are unabashed about publishing their findings either on the higher end or the lower end or whatever. You know, we've been through many election cycles recently where outlier polls seemed to, you know, have uh, have insight that the averages didn't. Yeah, and, and to your point, you know, outliers can also be the first sign of a new trend. So, you know, is it possible that Biden's approval rating could tick down uh, in the in the coming months? And maybe this would be an early indication of that. We don't know. Um, but I mm-hmm. just, I, I, to your point, it's, it is important that this result and results like it are published. Um, we don't want people to say, oh, this seems a little away from where the average is. We shouldn't publish this. That's like, horrible. Please don't do that. <laughs> Please publish your results. Yeah. I mean, even good pollsters run into, you know, a sample that is too liberal or too conservative from time to time. And ABC News, Washington Post is is a very good pollster. They have an A rating from us. I think the yeah, the fact that the that approval number being so low, it represented a, a dip, a decline in the ABC News, Washington Post trend, um, which is a decline that other pollsters have not measured, I think does suggest to me that it was just a too conservative a sample. And obviously, um, you know, kind of explains why you saw that result of, uh, I think, Trump leading by seven points, was it in the head to head? And then kind of on the flip side of the coin, the you have economist poll that you mentioned, um, you know, that had uh, Biden leading by five points among adults and three points uh, among registered voters. So that's um, an outlier in the other direction. Exactly. Right. Yes. And so like, this is why we, we take averages. Um, the, the other thing I will say is that like the, the utility of head to head polls at this point in the, in the cycle is, you know, marginal at best. Like we don't recommend looking at polls of the general election until basically after the primaries are over after the dust has settled we know the nominees the the you know kind of um members of each party who you know are are kind of coming home to their nominee after a potentially bruising primary fight and yeah like it's not something that 
like Biden should be losing a lot of sleep over just as, you know, Trump shouldn't lose sleep over a poll right now that had Biden up by five points. Um, like ultimately I think it's going to be a very close presidential election. Like we haven't had a, a, you know, kind of blowout of, of that magnitude, seven points since Barack Obama in 2008. I think probably those days are over at least in the short term because of polarization. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I just, I think it is just an outlier poll and we can move on. I mean, I think the poll did have some questions that signaled some potential challenges for Biden going forward um, that are unrelated to the horse race aspect of this. So one of the findings that was interesting is that even though Trump and Biden are both quite old, Trump is 76 and Biden is 80, um, the respondents were much more likely to say that Biden is too old for another term um, as opposed to Trump. And that gap was really big. Um, It was more than 20 percentage points between the people who said that Biden was too old for another term and um, the people who said that Trump was too old, although a significant number of people said that both Trump and Biden were too old. So, you know, worth bearing that in mind. But I think, you know, that's not a new dynamic. Um, We saw in 2020, Trump trying to portray Biden, who again is really not that much older than he is, as um, too old and infirm and losing his memory and, you know, losing his grasp on reality. So I think that's a signal that, you know, maybe those some of those attacks stuck. Um, maybe the fact that Biden has been in the public eye for the past few years in a way that Trump hasn't um, has made his age more salient in people's eyes. Um, anyway, you know, obviously not something that we're going to look at and say, ooh, like Biden is like really looks like he's going to lose in a year and a half um, because of this poll. But I think it, it signals um, a potential challenge for Biden going forward. Um, respondents were also substantially more likely to say that Trump did a better job handling the economy when he was president than Biden has done so far. And I think that's something else where, you know, this is this is so it's it was Americans said this by 54 to 36% saying that Trump did a better job versus Biden. It's a pretty big gap. And if you also just think about the circumstances of their presidencies, we've been dealing with inflation and the fallout from the COVID, the economic fallout from the COVID-19 pandemic for basically all of Biden's presidency. And the Fed is now having to take these sort of dramatic steps to try to bring inflation down. Biden has had, you know, he inherited a a pretty crappy situation, whereas the economy was very good for most of Trump's presidency. And, you know, we did see a recession in the last year of his term, but that was sort of the early pandemic. Um, And it was, I think, weird enough that people still associate all of that with something that was a byproduct of the pandemic and not something they would blame a president for, where I think people are pretty clearly blaming Biden for some of what we've seen in the past few years. All right. So some important context to think about when seeing that poll in the headlines going forward. Let's move on and talk about the 2024 Senate races that are taking shape. Today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. 
Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. The 10 most competitive Senate seats in 2024, according to the Cook Political Report, are West Virginia, Montana, Ohio, Arizona, Nevada, Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Florida, and Texas. Only two of those seats are currently held by Republicans, of course, Texas and Florida, and one is held by an independent, which is, of course, cinema in Arizona. We haven't really taken full stock of the race for the Senate yet, and, you know, with perhaps good reason, the election is a year and a half away. But if you had to approximate the odds today that Republicans will win a Senate majority in the next election, where would you place them, Nathaniel? Hmm. Yeah, it's a good question. I'm curious to see what Jeffrey thinks about this. Um, I would say the Senate overall is either lean or likely Republican. Um, I don't know if I want to go any if further I have than a, that. You don't yeah, put numbers to it? Okay, it, I mean, right. it is very early, right? And, uh, you know, probably the responsible thing to do is to have wide error bars. So, yeah, I would say one of those two things. Obviously, something that we've talked about before is, you know, Republicans have a very favorable Senate map for them. They like you know, their incumbents are pretty darn safe. Um, they're, you know, maybe vulnerable in, in Florida and Texas, as you mentioned, but like, obviously those are states that are very difficult for Democrats, especially these days. Um, and they have tons of, of pickup opportunities, right? Republicans do um, in terms of, you know, Democrats in, in red states. And so because of that, you know, I think at least a one seat gain for Republicans is, is quite likely. And then, you know, you can maybe, you can see a situation where maybe, you know, like Republicans only pick up one seat and maybe they lose the, you know, the vice presidency. And, and so kind of Democrats keep a 50, 50 Senate, but like, I think there's like all the different paths that they have gives them, you know, a, a very clear path to some higher than 50% number of odds. I tend to agree with what Nathaniel was saying there. I mean, it is early, but I think there's just, if you sort of just sort of think about the core opportunities for each party to add to their like current, the current seats they hold, um, Republicans get to target three states that are clearly to the right of the country, particularly West Virginia, which is like 
way to the right, you know, one of the most Republican states in the country, and then also Montana and Ohio, whereas for Democrats at 51 seats right now, Florida and Texas are their best bets, but those are definitely reach opportunities for them, mm-hmm. whereas, you know, Republicans might be even money or favored in those other three states we were just talking about. And then on top of that, you've got Arizona, Nevada, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, you know, states that Democrats are defending uh, the seats like, in. And, and states that are just truly, truly competitive. Yeah, will be so, on the presidential level, will be on the Senate level. Yeah, so all of this, and I think it's worth adding, in the 2016 presidential election, every single Senate race went the same way as the state did at the presidential level. And in 2020, just one state, Maine, didn't do that. So like, we know that they're not going to be a ton of split ticket voters. And so the the weight of the Republican performance at the top of the ticket in places like West Virginia, Montana, and Ohio uh, could make it particularly difficult for Democrats. They're going to need they're going to need split ticket voters to to hold on to any of those. And while they do exist, and you could basically bet that the Democratic incumbent senators there will probably outperform uh, Biden, uh, at the same time they have to outperform him by a fair amount, and that might be tough. Yeah, that's a good point, Jeffrey. Like, if you are someone like me who thinks that the presidential race is a toss-up, then like basically every situation where the Republican wins a presidential race is a situation where Republicans win the Senate, and then there are plenty of situations also where Republicans win the Senate even if Biden wins re-election because of the West Virginias and Montanas of the world. So, yeah, maybe it is closely closer to likely are. Okay, so those are the baseline odds. And recently, we've seen more and more folks jumping in, putting their hat in the ring uh, for the 2024 Senate races. What are the most recent updates in terms of who's running? So one of the probably one of the biggest developments um, was the announcement by West Virginia Governor Jim Justice, uh, a Republican, that he is going to seek West Virginia's Senate seat, um, which is currently held by uh, Democratic Senator Jim Manchin. Uh, Justice is quite popular, and Manchin is defending, you know, far and away the reddest seat uh, that Democrats hold. And so Justice is sort of seen as the, like, ideal recruit, uh, for, you know, to take to take on Manchin if Manchin even decides to run again. Uh, it's possible Manchin, who has not declared whether he intends to seek re-election yet or not, could decide that he doesn't can't be bothered because he knows that he might have a very tough race against justice uh, and doesn't want to, to face defeat. Um, so that, I think, is is the, the big deal. And maybe the thing to keep an eye on there is going to be just how strong is justice in the Republican primary against uh, Congressman Alex Mooney, who had already declared uh, back at the end of 2022 that he was running. Mooney is uh, definitely going to be trying to sort of outflank justice uh, to the right. Um, we've already seen some of his Mooney's early attack ads. Uh, but at the same time, Justice is so popular that, you know, it's it, Mooney's definitely going to be fighting an uphill battle. So, uh, and, but I know that Manchin would prefer to face Mooney uh, over Justice. So, you know, definitely, definitely a race to watch. Yeah, another big candidate announcement that we got last week was uh, Colin Allred in Texas, a Democratic representative from Dallas, um, and he jumped into the U.S. Senate race there against Ted Cruz. Uh, Of course, as we mentioned, this is one of Democrats' few, um, you know, only pickup opportunities. Um, And Allred is 
like he is a credible candidate. Uh, he first uh, came to Congress by winning a swing seat in the Dallas suburbs in 2018, and then obviously has been reelected twice, although the most recent time was in a much safer district after redistricting. So, you know, he has run tough races before, um, and he also raised an impressive $2 million in the first, I think, 36 hours, 24 hours after um, he um he announced his campaign, so you know that is maybe a sign that he will be able to approach Beto O'Rourke levels of fundraising against Ted Cruz. Um, when of course Beto O'Rourke, um, you know, raised a ton of money for that race yeah. uh, in part because Cruz is so um, nationally um, like infamous among Democrats and among the Democratic grassroots. Um, but at the same time, in an article that I have coming out uh, on the website on Tuesday, Allred did not do as well as O'Rourke did uh, within his district. And he also didn't do as well as Biden did in 2020. Um, and so I think that, you know, obviously, in order to beat Cruz, you're going to have to do even better than O'Rourke did in 2018. And, you know, Allred is a, a strong candidate, might be Democrats strongest, but I think it just really drives home the fact that like, you know, a Democrat hasn't won Texas since 1994. Like, this is this may be impossible for any Democrat to do. So while it is notable, you know, and I'm sure it will be a closely watched and expensive race. uh, At the end of the day, you know, it's hard to say, I think that that Cruz isn't favored again in Texas. The good news for Democrats, at least at this early stage, is it does seem like some candidates who would probably be weaker for Republicans are starting to get in. So in Nevada, um, you have Jim Marchant, who is an ally of Donald Trump, um, announcing that he is going to run against Democrat Jackie Rosen. Um, He, Marchant, is sort of notorious for promoting Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Um, And he also does not have a great electoral track record. He's lost his uh, past two campaigns, um, including recently in 2022, um, he ran as Secretary of State and lost. So I think that's probably good news for Democrats. Um, He is not likely to be the strongest candidate against Rosen. And then there's a question about whether someone like Doug Mastriano um, will run for Senate in Pennsylvania. We don't know what he's going to do yet, but he's been kind of making some noises about it. Um, And again, to the extent that Republicans end up nominating weaker candidates in 2024, that could help Democrats in what looks like a pretty bleak map. But that's not happening everywhere. I mean, Jeff, as, as you were saying, um, Jim Justice seems like he, he would be a, a very strong candidate. And so, you know, like, I think Democrats kind of have to hope for Republicans to, across the board, end up nominating a weak slate of candidates. And there are just so many races, you know, the, the likelihood that that'll happen everywhere seems fairly remote. Yeah, we're still at the point of the recruitment process in this election cycle. And so I'm curious, do we expect that there will be a trend similar to 2022 where the more Trump-aligned candidates tend to win? Or like, is Jim Marchant going to have a run for his money in Nevada? Well, I think it's pretty likely that Marchant will not have that primary to himself. Um, You know, for instance, we know that there are at least a couple other candidates who might be looking at the race, uh, or or more than might, I I should say. Um, Probably the most interesting one is Sam Brown, uh, who is a, uh, I think he was a Purple Heart recipient, 
and actually finished second in the 2022 Senate primary in Nevada that Adam Laxalt won, and then Laxalt went on to lose uh, to Catherine Cortez Master very narrowly uh, in the general election last uh, last cycle. Uh, Brown raised a lot of money, put himself on the map. Seems like he's probably uh, positioning himself to run. Uh, he would be uh, less of the, the MAGA type, but at the same time, you also could have like Joey Gilbert, who performed credibly despite not raising very much money in the 2022 gubernatorial primary primary in uh, Nevada, who is definitely very hardcore MAGA in his in his outlook um, running, which, you know, if, if in that situation, if all three of those guys were running, uh, you know, you'd probably want to be brown because you could have Marchant and Gilbert maybe splitting uh that segment of the Republican base. So anyway, like obviously there's just a lot more to come uh, before we can really handicap that, I guess. Right, exactly. And I think an important thing to remember is that, you know, Trump has a a strong endorsement record, but that's like, he doesn't always endorse the most MAGA candidate, right? He likes to pick a winner. Um, And so, you know, and, and he often likes to jump in kind of at the last minute, right? There'll be a few candidates probably who he endorses toward the beginning of the cycle. But like, you know, there's a, yeah, there, like Jeffrey said, there's a lot of time time for this to evolve for, you know, kind of vote splits to emerge just as a result of random happenstance. You know, there are two Trump aligned candidates versus one, you know, not Trump aligned candidate. And, you know, and so I think that, you know, you may very well see a Trump endorsed candidate winning, but does that mean that he's going to pick like Jim Marchant, like, maybe not um so so yeah you know and i think for you know like there's also i should say like sam brown is not like anti-trump by any stretch of the imagination he's actually kind of the exact type of candidate i could see appealing to trump in a certain way um and so i think like while i think we can assume that candidates with you know who aligned with trump to some extent um will uh you know will will generally prevail in you know 80 percent 90 percent of republican primaries it doesn't necessarily mean they'll be the the really hardest core um most unelectable ones how are democrats doing we mentioned colin allred which seems to be a strong recruit for democrats in so for example Michigan, Debbie Stabenow is retiring. Elisa Slotkin has announced that she's running. I'm not sure we've got much news in Florida in terms of Democrats recruiting someone there. But are, you know, are Democrats generally recruiting strong mainstream candidates in the races where they have an open nomination? Well, that's the thing, right, is that they have so few opportunities. You know, they've got Colin Allred, and in Florida, they don't have anybody yet, really. Um, So it's still very much up in the air. Um, I do think one thing that is, you know, this isn't really relevant to the battle for the Senate, but something that is worth mentioning is that in Maryland, you had a high-profile retirement, Senator Ben Cardin, um, and that looks like it's going to be an interesting uh, and potentially crowded Democratic primary. And and you already have um, David Trone, who is the the wealthy owner of uh, Total Wine & More, um, who has mm, the potential to spend? What a what, um, a, what a descriptor! Mm. The wealthy owner of Total Wine and More. Um, that kind of sounds like I don't know a title from Schitt's Creek. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, it's a title I wouldn't mind having, but um, yeah, you know, honestly, rich, all lots the, of rich, booze. and you have all the wine you want. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, but uh, but yeah, he um, you know he's he's already running for that Senate seat. Uh, I don't think he'll be alone. Uh, Angela also Brooks, uh, who's a, a county executive from the D.C. area, also looks like she uh, will get in. So that's going to be an interesting race where Democrats will have lots of credible candidates. One of whom will almost certainly make it to the Senate, obviously, because Maryland is a blue state. 
Yeah, I mean, sort of to the point that Nathaniel's making uh, the the sort of candidate action you're seeing um, either that we're, we've seen announcements or you know the murmurings you've heard about candidates who might run, you know, largely reflect the partisan leans of those states. You know, for Democrats, they don't have anybody in Florida yet, even though they know it's going to be a big, expensive battle. But that's because the, the Democrats going to start out as an underdog, so getting someone significant to run uh, is not necessarily easy. Uh, does that person want to you know step out and take a chance um, if they currently hold an office or risk a defeat that could you know down the road maybe there's a better environment for them uh, you just don't know uh, whereas you know in, in a state like Ohio for instance you know Republicans already have a couple candidates uh, in the race and we know that there's some others out there who who may run as well and we saw in 2022 a crowded race uh, for an open seat there so like for on the Republican side because Republicans know that they have a, a a real chance of knocking off Sherrod Brown. Uh, so, and, and to the point of Maryland, having a bunch of Democrats running in a blue state, you know, it would make sense because they see if I can win the primary, I'll win the general and I might be in that seat for a long time. So that's, you know, that, that, that's an important thing to keep in mind. We have actually yet to mention one of the most interesting Senate races this cycle, which is actually going to be in Arizona. Of course, Kirsten Sinema changed her party registration late last year, so she's now an independent, although tends to, I mean, she kind of avoided the topic of who exactly she's caucusing with, although she seems to caucus more with the Democrats. It's not clear yet whether or not she's running for re-election as an independent, and she's already got challengers on either flank either way. How's that race shaping up. Well, it seems like Democrats have mostly rallied and coalesced around Ruben Gallego, a uh, congressman from the from the Phoenix area, who's who's been a big cinema critic uh, and you know even more so once she switched to becoming an independent. Uh, meanwhile, Republicans, you know, that field is still developing definitely. Uh, you have Mark Lamb who's like this this sheriff from Pinal County who's gotten a lot of uh, attention. Um, but it is possible that Carrie Lake, the 2022 gubernatorial nominee for the GOP, who has sort of rejected that she lost uh, that election, uh, could run. Um, and she, there was like a She's recent been teasing it. There was like a recent tweet and some like news that 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 she she may be signaling <clears throat> that she's anticipating running for that. Um, so, you know, that could be a pretty wild primary, and I think Democrats would probably welcome. Lake's candidacy, because if she won the Republican nomination, as she showed in the gubernatorial race in 2022, she was maybe not the strongest. Do we have any sense of whether Cinema is running for re-election? I think her fundraising... I think she's, she's signaling that she Yeah, is. I think her fundraising um, would suggest... I mean, she hasn't come out and said it, but yeah, but she's raising money. It seems like she's gearing up. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that that's that's where she's pointing the attention at least. Although I have seen various news reports where you know most people think she's going to try to run, but that there are some people who say, well, actually she might not. I, it's, you know, until she tells us that she's running, we won't know. Oh, for sure. So, and she will face a very difficult pathway to, to winning reelection if she does run in a three-way race where, you know, Democrats and Republicans have, are, are, are mostly behind their candidate. Like that's going to be really, really hard. <laughs> Let's move on to our final segment of the day and talk about some brand new census data. I think this might be the only podcast where I can promo the next segment by saying, next, we're going to talk about some brand new census data and people might actually stick around. So stick around. 
Last week, the census released turnout data from the 2022 midterms, which gave us a more precise insight into who actually turned out to vote last fall. Some of these trends we've been able to get a sense of using other data, but this allows for comparisons across decades of census data. What the census found was that overall turnout was down compared with the historic high from 2018 of 50%. It was down to 46.5%, although that's still relatively high turnout for a midterm election. Black turnout fell notably, 10 percentage points, compared with 1.5 percentage points for white voters and about 5 percentage points for Hispanic and Asian voters. Youth turnout also dropped off significantly, flying in the face of claims that Democrats owed their better than historically expected performance to motivated young voters. So first of all, we could already see some of these trends, as I mentioned, in voter data reported by individual states last year. And how, though, is this data different? Like, how does the census determine these numbers? So it's part of the uh, current population survey. Uh, they they always do this in an election year um, with the one fo- the, their survey following the election. They have an an extra part to the survey that asks people about their registration status, whether they voted, um, and that is how you get the data that that does this. And so this is ultimately still self-reported. Like there could be some biases in the data in terms of people not remembering that they voted. Or I mean, that sounds ridiculous, but oftentimes we talk about how people don't remember who they voted for. Maybe they just aren't really, they're going through the survey quickly. I don't know, like what biases could exist in this data? Oh, absolutely. There is a there is a tendency uh, in this sort of data for people to over-report their participation. Um, and a lot of social scientists actually have developed systems for adjusting uh, this data so that they so that it's sort of taking into account that overreport bias. Uh, so, uh, you know, knowing that like the the data is useful because you'd sort of expect uh, that bias to exist, you know, sort of regardless of what what year you're talking about. Um, so, you know, I think we can. It's fair to say that, it, and also comparing with with other data sources, that turnout was down somewhat from the 2018 midterm, but was still quite high for a midterm election. And so, sort of bringing in that other knowledge and what this data shows, like, you know, it's it's telling us something meaningful. But we should know that there is a possibility that it is at least somewhat uh, rounded up, you might say. Yeah, just just to add to what Jeff was saying, I mean, we will have more data coming out, I think, probably over the summer um, from what are called validated voter surveys, where basically the the data from a, a survey about the election is matched to a voter file to figure out if people actually did vote. Um, so that reduces some of the bias that Jeff was talking about, where people tend to say that they voted when they didn't actually. But I do think the census data, as Jeff was saying, is especially valuable for looking at trends. And that was one of the big takeaways that people were digging into was how um, voter turnout among different groups compared um, between 2022 and 2018 and, and previous midterm elections. Yeah. So understanding that, that this, you know, there are caveats that come with basically every data set we'll discuss. Still, this data tells us, you know, what and oftentimes not why. Do we have a sense of why the drop-off from 2018, and in particular, I mean, 2018 was so high that I think everyone sort of expected a drop-off, but maybe in particular, why the drop-off amongst particular segments of the electorate being, first and foremost, 
black voters, young voters. And also there was a significant drop off amongst college educated voters. So there was less of a drop off amongst uh, voters with, you know, a high school degree. Uh, but more so with a postgraduate degree or a college degree, which was also interesting because we expect midterms to be the kinds of elections where those voters are most liable to turn out. Well, I mean, I think there were signals for a lot of these trends going into the election um, at the site for really, you know, over a year, Alex Samuels was doing some really great coverage about how black voters in particular were not enthused with Biden, were not feeling politically motivated by the Democratic Party. Um, and and what we're seeing in the turnout numbers for the CPS, uh, the census data for black voters, is that there's a huge decline from 2018. But it's not like we're going down below the levels that we're sort of seeing historically. So it's actually still the turnout is a little bit higher for 2022 than it was in 2014. Um, And so it could just be that 2018 was an anomalous year for this group. It also could be a worrying sign for Democrats that they're not doing enough to motivate this important part of their base to come out and vote. Um, And I think, you know, there's something similar going on with with the youngest voters. I mean, there, the decline was not as substantial, and the turnout share for 18 to 29-year-olds was still quite a bit higher than it was in 2014 in 2014. Um, So I would say, you know, even though it wasn't as high as it was in 2018, the fact that it didn't dip down to where we had seen young voters um, sort of consistently hitting in previous midterms is, I think, a signal that there was something going on with this midterm that engaged young people more than they would have been in the past. So I don't think it's a sign that like the theories about young people being motivated by an issue like abortion, that's completely untrue. Um, it is pointing to the fact that this doesn't seem to have been a year like 2018 where we saw really high um, levels of turnout with this group. But, um, you know, it's still still pretty significant. Um, and then kind of a similar trend with, um, with more educated voters. You know, again, 2018 was a year where we saw just really, really high levels of turnout among these groups. And so we see a decline in 2022. You know, I mean, 2018 was the year when Trump was president. People were really motivated to vote against Trump. And Trump is not president this year, and he's not on the ballot. And I think that has to explain some of what we're seeing. Um, And in some ways, I think Democrats are lucky that these turnout numbers weren't even lower. Um, I think some of that is attributable to issues like abortion being motivating factors. So I think there are kind of, you know, the declines are there and they're real and they shouldn't be minimized. But I think you also have to look at how far they declined relative to previous years. Um, And it's not as much of a decline as you might expect, given some of the factors in in 2022. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. The three demographic groups that we just talked about are groups that are highly Democratic voting. And 2018 was a big uh, Democratic turnout year. So important to think about that context when we're thinking about the 2022 numbers. You know, I think as we get new data like this, because we're this election is already behind us. And so no one cares anymore. I think people are going to want to think more about 2024. And does this data mean anything for the next election? You know, never get off that hamster wheel. Uh, 
Does it? Uh, I would say that it has very little to tell us about the presidential election turnout. Um, actually, I remember a couple years ago, I tried to do basically like a correlation analysis between like one midterms turnout and then the following presidential, and there was basically no relationship. So, uh, you know, you're talking about an election where the most high-profile office in the country, um, in the most the highest turnout election. Uh, is the presidential contest. So comparing that to a midterm election, you know, we can expect the electorate to look different. You're going to have more voters who are less engaged showing up to vote. Um, and you're just, I mean, you, you know, the comparison is having turnout that's in the 40s of the eligible voting population versus, you know, 60 or more percent. And so that's like that's like fifty percent more, roughly, you know, give or take mm. a little bit. Um, so you just you you you're basically guaranteed higher turnout in a presidential election because of the stakes and the high profile nature of that office. All right, well that was that was that was easy. Well done, guys. We made it all make sense. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Well, you know, there are always some there's always some questions remain, which is why you got to keep listening. Uh, but anyway, we're gonna leave it there for today. So thank you, Amelia, Nathaniel, and Jeff. Thank you, Galen. Thanks, Galen. Thanks, Galen. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the control room and also on video editing. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcast at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we will see you soon.